in the series I've been doing. And I want to go back, first of all, to Malachi 1 and verse 6 and review this. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Says the Eternal of hosts to you, O priests that despise my name. And you say, Wherein have we despised your name? And then he goes on to indict the priests particularly, and uh, individuals as well throughout this book, but primarily the priesthood or the ministry. But then, on the other hand, are we not all priests and kings in training for the kingdom of God? So it doesn't apply just to those who might hold an office today, but to each and every one of us who is uh, a child of God. He is our Father, and we're working toward His kingdom. So this is an indictment on every last one of us. And then he says we've not given him the best. We've offered polluted things to him. Oh, we've been over this before, but I wanted to review it here because this is where I started the series on our Father in Heaven. But we've looked upon him as the Almighty, as the living God, as the Creator, I think, first. And some of the offices, the major ones that he holds, we've not by any means covered them all, but the ones in specific that he deals with here are Father and Master. Master, we have included certainly in uh, implication, if not too much directly, because Master implies one who makes the rules, the one who sets the parameters. Uh, In business, you might say the corporate heads or the boss sets the rules for that company. And we are there then to enforce, to follow the rules, to run the company or the business as the owner or whatever form it might take as a corporation uh, has decreed. So, all through the Bible, we see God's rules. He certainly is the master in that sense. Master can mean teacher. He teaches us how to live. This book is the manual on how to live a human life. Uh, Sometimes we as people don't like to read the instructions. Uh, If we're assembling something made somewhere and they send it to us with some uh, construction required, Men hold the reputation of never reading the rule book. And it doesn't look like the picture on the front. So we have to go back and start over and figure out where all those other pieces went. And humanity is much the same. We don't like to read the rule book, really. We just want blessings. But God is the master, the teacher, the one who has made the rules, and... Those rules must be followed if there is to be true happiness and security in human life. That's just the way that it is. So, the one who makes the rules, who regulates things, and then father, and the two go hand in hand. In a human family, it is the father who sets the rules of the house, or at least it's supposed to be. Uh, That's the way God set it up. 
using the mother as his first and chief counselor, and how the family is to be guided and ruled, and to honor and respect her views, uh, and take them into deep consideration before he sets policy for the house. Not just to overrule her and overrun her, uh, but fathership and master or teacher in that sense go hand in hand. So I want to address fatherhood next. Where is my honor as father? Now you and I refer to our Father in heaven quite frequently, do we not? It rolls off our tongue, our lips very, very easily. We're used to it. I wonder, based on this scripture and upon our conduct, how much we take that for granted, how easily it comes to us, how comfortable we might be with the wording, the sound of our Father. Do we realize what a special relationship this is? Do we think about it? Have we thought it out? Have we truly considered what that means for Almighty God, Creator God, Living God, Teacher and Master, to allow us to call Him Father? I want us to back up here for a few moments into the Old Testament and see how special this really is. Now, if you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, through the Bible, you will never find Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, referring to anyone as their father or to my son. It's just not there. It was not there with Enoch, with Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He never placed himself in that light with those men. He did call Abraham a friend, Isaiah 41.8, my friend Abraham, and James used that appellation in James 2.23 as well, where he refers to this incident in Isaiah 41. Now, we have had friends, and a friend is a wonderful relationship, is it not? And yet, friendship and fatherhood are two different things. You can have lots of friends, but you only have one father. Now, when we approach the subject of father... It has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. It has different emotional reactions when you bring up the thought of father. The reason for that is some of us have had pretty good fathers. Some of us had pretty fair fathers. Some of us had lousy fathers. In some cases, we would not refer to our physical father as a father, but perhaps a sperm donor at best. Because it was a totally dysfunctional situation with no love or even recognition, perhaps, of us as his children. 
In some cases, it was an incomplete relationship because people don't understand how to be a father. They don't get the right balance in it. Some are too easy. Some are too hard. Some cause bitterness. Some can cause emotional feelings of love. And yet perhaps they go so far that direction that they don't discipline properly either. So all of us have had, to one degree or another, an a a dysfunctional relationship with a human father. None has the perfect balance. None has the exact right approach. In other words, there's room for us to comprehend better what father means. It's difficult for us as human beings to relate to our father in heaven in the exact right perspective, it has just simply not been our experience. So, our relationship with God in heaven, our Father in heaven, is limited by our experience on this earth. And we tend to look at Him the way we looked at our physical Father to one degree or another. So there is room to learn, there is room to improve, so that the relationship, which is the most important relationship between man and deity, is the relationship between us and our Father in heaven. So I think it is wise that we spend some time on this, that we might, from God's Word, get a better perspective of what fatherhood means. Because our own limited experience may lead us in wrong understanding or wrong emotion or certainly incompleteness in how the relationship should exist. So let's go back to Second Samuel 7. And unless I overlook something, I, I looked down through uh, on my study Bible on the computer in the concordance, and I think it was 979 or sometimes the word Father is mentioned in the Bible and I skimmed through, so I might have missed something, but I don't recall seeing, or I didn't find anything uh, until we get to Second Samuel. And there God first introduces himself as human being, to human beings, from the standpoint of Father. Second Samuel 7. And here I want to begin in verse 1, because in this introduction to mankind as a father. God has quite a bit to say, and there is a lot of instruction, things we might learn about how the relationship ought to be. It came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Eternal had given him rest round about from all his enemies, this is speaking of David, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. Now David at times, as we heard even in the sermonette, had problems in his life. He did things he should not have done, as all men have. But he was very devoted to God. He had a relationship with God that, if you read through the Psalms, was very, very close, very intimate, spoke easily with his father, as it came to be, in heaven. Many of us have had a certain amount of dysfunction with a human father who was not perhaps the best communicator, 
didn't know how to express feelings, had been taught that he should hide his feelings and never cry, or whatever, by society around us. So, in genuine emotion and capability of expressing that emotion even, our human fathers have failed us to a great degree. And we then, responding as sons and daughters, have not had the complete relationship with our human fathers we should. It has been looked up to when a man is the quiet, silent type, or the strong, silent type, I guess is the way we put it. What's so good about silence? I had a father, human father, who had trouble expressing his feelings and emotions. I didn't doubt that he loved me, but it was awfully hard for him to say it. probably awfully hard for him to say it to me (laughs) as a son that wasn't everything I was supposed to be. But it was difficult for him. He learned to say I love you to me and I think to the rest of the kids by the time he was 60 or 70 years of age. It took a while. But we see in the Psalms the relationship and how easily David could speak to deity. And we should become that way. So it's an intimate, close relationship. So David had an emotion, a feeling here. He says, I have a nice, fine home here, and all we have for God to dwell in is a portable tent. That's what it was. It could be taken down, set up wherever they traveled. Isn't it time that I honor my Father in heaven, or God in heaven, really, at this point, with something more permanent, something more beautiful. So his feelings there for deity were easily expressed. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the eternal is with you. doesn't call him son or father at this point. And it came to pass that night that the word of the eternal came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the eternal, Shall you build a house for me to dwell in? I understand your emotion, David, but are you qualified to do this? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. I've done this. Apparently I'm okay with this. Who are you? In all, uh, let's see. In all the places wherein I have walked with the children of Israel, uh, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Is this something I've requested? Now therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Eternal of hosts. Still a very formal title there. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I went with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and have made you a great name, like to the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, 
that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. He's introducing a subject here. I'm going to take care of these wanderers, these people who have been in slavery, these people who have been insecure, have not been well taken care of. I am going to put them in a secure place of their own. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Now, this is a prophecy of things God intends to do. There is a disclaimer further down. Israel has not always dwelt in the promised land. It has always been theirs, but they were taken away for various reasons of sin. And God has always then returned them, even as He returned us to this country after having been in a long captivity and gone from the promised land. We came back. God allowed that. And immediately we established a pagan government over us. And we have gone downhill ever since. Verse 11, As since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Eternal tells you that He will make you an house. And God says, I'm the one to make the house. Who are you to make a house for me? I'm the one that's going to settle you in a land. I'm the one that's going to bless you. I'm the one that will take care of you. What does a father do? He provides. He gives everything that is needful and necessary. He doesn't give that which is not necessary. He knows when to stop. He doesn't give too much. He doesn't give too little. He doesn't spoil. And when your days be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he says, it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be your son. And then he says, Verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This is a formal declaration God makes to David about Solomon. And it is the first time that God refers to himself in this role. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So he says, I'm establishing this relationship. Now, if he doesn't do what I tell him to do, I will punish him. Now, that you can refer right on to Hebrews 12, can't you? God chastens every son whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten you, it says, he doesn't love you. Even as he tells us, if you don't chasten your children, you do not love them. In other words, we must, in the role of a parent, as the Father in heaven, command respect of our children. We do not talk back to God. We do not demean Him. We do not rebel against Him. At least we're not supposed to. When we do, he says, I will chasten you. 
In other words, he says, I will have respect. So fatherhood is more than friendship. If we try to just be friends with our children, we are cutting them short of the kind of parenting that God himself shows to us. So I'm going to be his father. He's going to be my son. And the very first thing he establishes here, notice, is that there will be respect in this relationship. If he does not follow my rules as a son, I will chasten him. I will paddle his behind. Now, we have a distorted view. Some of us grew up in the church in which we had the child-rearing booklet, which said, hit them for everything they do, or paddle them. But we sometimes overdid it. We followed it too much to the letter and chased them too much. And in some cases, that was resented. Perhaps we, as we chastened and paddled, we did not show enough love and affection on the other side. So the children had a certain amount of resentment of that. And if we were in one ditch and paddling too much, then the next generation, to a great degree, went into the other ditch. My children are not going to suffer the things that I suffered. They won't go without the things that I went without. I will give my children everything, and we don't want to chasten them, don't want to discipline them, and we let them talk back, and they let them show disrespect, and it is a dysfunctional relationship according to the relationship that God the Father wants with us as His sons. There is a middle road. We'll see God define that as we go through these scriptures. But when he introduces himself as father to us as sons, or to Solomon as his son, that's the first thing he brings up. I'll chasten him with the rod of men. That should tell us something. It would be better to err sometimes a little on the side of disciplinarian than on the side of too soft. Because softness breeds disrespect. Therefore, God addresses it in Malachi 1, doesn't he? Where is my honor as father and as master? I expect more out of you than what you're doing. Showing disrespect by offering to me that which is polluted or imperfect or less than what I should have as a father. So the line between father and son is a very distinct one with God. It has to be based upon respect and obedience. If respect and obedience is there, then the relation is not there, then the relationship is going to suffer. It just is. Verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. So he says, first of all, we're going to have to have respect and obedience in this relationship, otherwise there's going to be trouble. I'm your father, not just your friend. Get it? That relationship of the hoary head, if you will, the father in heaven, 
and us as his sons, is established here between the Father and the Son. Now, on top of the rod of men, my mercy shall not depart away from him. So, discipline, obedience and discipline is important. But, mercy is always there. That's why we have a psalm that says over and over, My mercy endures forever. Now, David wrote that because he had received a great deal of mercy from God the Father. Now, God did not even at that point call David his son. He said, Your son Solomon I will be a father too, and the ensuing generations. Verse 16, In your house, in your kingdom, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's an unqualified statement. Solomon may mess up, but I will chasten him. I will have mercy, and the Father is giving what? He's giving security in the relationship here, isn't he? This is something that is going to continue forevermore. If I establish myself as your father, that will never change. I will always be your father. Now, isn't that why Christ could later on say, I will never leave nor forsake you? Because that is the relationship that God the Father, when he established this formal relationship, had established. A lot of people are insecure with their parents Insecurity comes from lack of discipline, frankly. Because if a child does not know where the borders are, he explores until he finds them. It's like when you turn an animal into a new pasture. Just about the first time thing they'll do every time is they'll go around two or three times and find out where the fences are and if there are any gates. They're checking to see where the border is. They need to know. If they don't know where the border is, they're insecure. And we, as God's children, need to know where the borders are. And if we go over the line, then discipline comes. So your children, to be secure, need to know where the lines are. And they need to stay within those lines. But if you are so weak and soft that you do not keep them within those lines, then they become insecure and they don't know how far they can go. And then they will try you. They will go as far as they can go. Now God has allowed mankind a certain amount of freedom. So I'm the master, I'm the father, here are the rules. And he allows us to go beyond the rules, doesn't he? But he only allows us to go so far, and then he comes back and says, where is my honor as father? Now let's redraw the lines. And he'll whip us back inside the lines. That's what he's about to do with all mankind. So he'll let you go out to a certain degree. He'll let you burn your fingers. But he will draw you back in. Like a good father should. Because how can you be secure if you don't know what you're doing? You know, a, chi a child will try you, won't they? They'll talk back. 
They'll murmur, they'll complain, they'll slam a door, they'll pout to see if they can get away with it. And if they can, they continue it. So you teach them to disrespect you by allowing them to have those attitudes. God allowed it to a certain point, but then he's going to stop it. He wants us to police ourselves, and if we won't, then he will come in and police us. It's just the way it is. But under that, he says, my mercy is there and you will be established forevermore. This will never change. I'm going to be your father. And I'm going to treat you like sons. So we can have security in knowing that that will not be withdrawn. His love is unconditional. He shows it in different ways at different times. Sometimes it's with mercy and kindness and gentleness. Sometimes it's with chastening. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. Then went King David in and sat before the Eternal, and he said, Who am I, O Eternal God, and what is my house that you have brought me to this? That you've offered this, fatherhood and eternity. Who am I? Now, there's part of the attitude that God loved in David. Who am I anyway? I'm nothing. I've sinned against you. I've not been what I ought to be. And you're giving this to me. David did not take it for granted, did he? He was overwhelmed that God would offer to him, through Solomon, something he had never even offered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's incredible. Fatherhood. Probably as we grew up, we had a relationship with our own fathers. And we saw children that had other fathers. And sometimes we thought, I wish my dad would be like that dad. You know, we would compare. Some things about other fathers might impress us more than our own fathers did. Or maybe we were one of those fortunate ones that had the kind of father that everybody else wanted to have. It varies in human relationships. But here is Almighty God offering to be Father. Now, He's offered us that, hasn't He? We'll get to that. But through Solomon, it was to come on down. It had some rocky places, but that's the way it was. Let's go to First Chronicles 22. This story is rehearsed, but God lays it out uh, a little more. First Chronicles 22, and let's pick it up in verse 7. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Eternal, my God. Referring to deity as the Eternal, my God. But the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, You have shed blood abundantly, and have made great wars, You shall not build a house to me, because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. David had lots of enemies. He had fought lots of wars. Uh, 
And fighting does not improve peace. It generates more war. Just as family feuds. You know, you heard about the uh, Hatfields and McCoys in the American past. There were a lot of family feuds that went on. And every time somebody killed Grandma, it just made it worse, not better, as the song goes. So each act of war creates a desire for vengeance, bitterness, hatred, and all those things. So David was not a man of rest in that sense. So God offers that to Solomon. Uh, For his name shall be Solomon. That means peaceable. It also means something else we'll get to later. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So this establishing of fatherhood with Israel was to be something that would go on and on and never end. Now God tells us in the latter days to build a temple for God. Haggai, Zechariah, all through the New Testament. We're to build a temple of our bodies. And that is to be a house for God, our Father. We're to build a church, a spiritual temple, which is to be where God dwells within His church. Other analogies make it the mother. Jerusalem from above, the mother of us all. So the heavenly Jerusalem or the church, as Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 indicate. And it may be. And I think some scriptures indicate this, that not only are we to build a spiritual temple, but it appears now also a physical temple. I think there's enough scriptural backup for that that I feel fairly secure in saying that at this point. As the children of our Father in heaven. So the relationship that God established with Solomon to build a temple for God. And he said, I haven't spoken of this in the past, remember? I was content to dwell in the ark, or I mean in the, uh, the tent. But now I'm going to have Solomon build me a house. And David was so excited about that that he went out. He knew he wasn't going to do it, but he got busy assembling all the materials, having them made and prepared and set in order ready to go, so that Solomon could actually build it. He didn't act as a spoiled brat, did he? And say, well, if I'm not going to build a temple, phooey, let Solomon get it all together. No, he loved the Lord of hosts. He said, I will assemble the parts. I, I will take blessing in that. I'm not going to take you for granted at all. I'm not going to resent you. I'm not going to be angry at you. I've worked at my relationship with you all my life, David could have said, and here you don't even let me build you a house. No, he understood. He knew he had been a man of war. He knew he had committed crimes against God in that sense. And that as a bloody man, how could he build a house of peace? So God said, I'm going to do it to Solomon. We'll call him peaceable. And he can do it. So there's no taking for granted here with David, but he had great respect. He said, I will follow through and I'll do everything I can do. 
So he's he's going to do that. Now verse 11, Now my son, the Eternal be with you, and prosper you, and build the house of the Eternal your God, as he has said of you. Only the Eternal give you wisdom and understanding, and give you charge concerning Israel, that they may keep the law of the Eternal your God. So he gives Solomon instruction in sonship. God has offered to be your father, therefore I want you to be this kind of son to him. Ask him to give you wisdom and understanding. What better could a father impart to a son than wisdom and understanding on how to live, how to act, how his relationship with God ought to be? Then shall you prosper. If you follow God's laws, and he gives you wisdom and understanding and how to follow them, and take heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the eternal charged Moses with concerning Israel, be strong and of good courage, fear not, nor be dismayed. Same things he tells us in the instruction in Zephaniah and Haggai, and in the instruction to Joshua before they went into the promised land there in Joshua 1 and 2. Almost the exact same words. So here we are today, not just reading ancient history, but reviewing how God did it in the past and what He expects of you and me today. This history is as important right now as it can get because He is charging us to do the same thing He charged Solomon to do. Call Solomon a man of peace or peaceable. Haggai 2, verse 9, I think it is, says, In this place will I bring peace. The church has been confused, living in fear, frustration, disarray. And God says, I'm going to bring my remnant together, and there will I bring peace. So when He lays upon us the responsibility as end-time Christians to build a house to Him, both spiritual and maybe physical, He expects us to be peaceable and loving and kind and gentle as Solomon. Now behold, in my trouble I prepared for the house of the Eternal a hundred thousand talents of gold. And then he went on down and explained those things. Let's go from there to chapter 29 of the same book. Chapter 29. And begin in verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the eternal God of Israel that His fierce wrath may turn away from us. Now God has had a fierce wrath against the church today, as we all know, and has spewed us out of His mouth and cast us into the confusion and splintering that we're in today. So here... We have Hezekiah speaking. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Eternal has chosen you to stand before Him, to serve Him, and that you should minister to Him and burn incense. Is this? Oh, I, I, mean, I was supposed to be in first. I knew that wasn't working. I was trying to make it fit. Man, I was working overtime. First Chronicles 29, all right. Anybody that thought I was perfect, I guess that blew your, busted your bubble. 
That was, I think that was busted a long time ago, wasn't it? First Chronicles 29. All right, let's go to verse 10 again now. Wherefore, David blessed the eternal before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be you, eternal God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. So God establishes covenant with David for Solomon, but he allowed David to come in this circle. And I think that is brought out in the Psalms very clearly where he referred to God as his father as well. Uh, Yours, O Eternal, is the greatness and the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Where is my honor, God tells us in Malachi 1. Now, how did David look at it when he looked to his new father, in that sense, in heaven? His words were all of great respect and love and Incredible adjectives that he used. Greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O eternal, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, how, how did Christ put it in the model prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, God is establishing here through David a relationship that Christ is going to later on bring forward with the disciples in very much the same way. Is there resentment of an over-harsh father? Is there lack of respect because of a not-enough discipline? You see, God loved David. God was willing to forgive David of some pretty horrible sins. And yet He chastened David with the death of a son, with not allowing him to build a temple because of his love of blood. So, in the relationship with David, God both loved and showed mercy, and he disciplined as well. He shows a perfect balance between the two. It's hard for us as human fathers to achieve that. We'll tend to be one way or the other too much, and finding the center road of love and emotion and kindness and mercy with the other side of discipline so that the respect remains. But David is showing a great deal of emotion, feeling, and respect for God. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of you. Anything we have on this earth comes from Father in heaven, doesn't it? We look to Him for everything. That's one of the primary jobs of a human father is to provide for his family, to give them the things they need. Riches and honor come of you, and you reign over all. So, blessings come, but also the reign is there. That is the oversight. And in your hand is power and might. So, David is showing a great deal of emotion for his father, but he's also recognizing the power and the might in the fear of God here. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So he said, ask that if your father give you wisdom and understanding. Well, fearing God is where wisdom begins. If we have that in hand, then we begin to understand. Understand. 
Uh, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. What did Christ say? Of myself I can do nothing. Of myself I am nothing. The Father gives me everything I need. He gives me the answers when I need them. Gives me everything that I could possibly need to do the job that is before me. And a proper human father is going to think a lot about what his children are going to need to be good, upstanding, functional citizens in society. And he needs to be able to impart to them wisdom and respect and obedience and love and all the things that you need to be equipped to go out in the world with strength, security. You know, some of us are so shy to the point of not being able to accomplish anything or we have so little self-respect and demean ourselves too much to the point we can't really function, and too often we're too proud and too vain and self-centered and egotistical and braggarts and whatever else. And it's hard for us to find the balance because our parents were not able to somehow get across to us the proper balance in all things. So we go into a society somewhat impaired or lame in terms of how to get along in business and in relationships. We need to look to our Father in heaven. Because He is the one that gives all these things. Now therefore, our God, we thank You and praise Your glorious name. Wouldn't it be neat if our children all looked to us with that kind of an attitude? If we were able somehow to show them the amount of discipline, the amount of love and mercy that they need to make them a totally balanced human being by the time they reach the age of majority, or in God's word, the age of 20 of accountability. It is our job to take that little infant, and as it begins to learn to stand and talk, to mold it, to shape it, Throughout the first 20 years, take our hands off it more and more as it learns to control itself until we can drop our hands to our side and say, you are of majority age, you are mature, you have self-control, you are not egotistical and selfish. Be a proper human being. That's our job as a parent. Some of, us, some of us give them too much independence when they're too young and they can't handle it and they make too many mistakes. You know, when they're little and they're just barely learning to walk, aren't we careful how we keep our hands around them and don't fall and skin yourself up? And then as they learn to walk better, we kind of remove our hands and let them walk on their own. Now, they may be able to physically walk, but are they ready to walk as a full-grown citizen? No, because they have years ahead of their selfishness coming out, of their vanity, their ego, their pride, all those things that they need to learn to deal with. It's much easier to teach them and allow them to learn to walk physically, isn't it? That, in some ways, is a joy, even if they do fall on their diaper at times or their nose. But when they get about 12, 13, 14, 
That's much more difficult. Because then you're not just dealing with physical walking, you're dealing with emotions in the mind of a human being that is all closed in on itself and resentful and trying to begin to withdraw from you so that they can stand on their own. And it's a very difficult time to teach them the respect, the obedience, and give them the love that they need. We have to always be there. I've often seen parents with their first child or two, they're very attentive. And they work at it harder. And by the time number six or seven or eight comes along, oh my, I'm tired of child rearing. Do I have to go through this again? Why did you have to show up? Well, maybe it's not quite that bad. But we get tired of disciplining and loving and fighting with them to have right attitudes. But that's our job, to learn to be a proper parent so that that child can come to the point that he is giving, serving, loving, helpful, industrious, obedient, and can be an upstanding citizen by the time they're 20. We should be able to do that. But it's tough. Because it's tough for us to be a son to our Father in Heaven, isn't it? That's a daily, daily hard job. To have that relationship and to keep it right. But here's the beginning of it. These words about our Father of Israel. So He's our Father too. Because we're spiritual Israel. Verse 14, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things have come of you, and of your own have we given you. Even if we give him the tithe back. He gave it all to us in the first place. It all originated in this earth that he created and established. All wealth ultimately comes out of the ground, out of the sea. The things God has made that we then mine or take and make into something else. So he put the wealth there. He put every blessing there is there. The things that grow, the things to eat, all came from him. He is the provider of everything. So our relationship needs to be, as David was saying here, it all came from you anyway. What right do I have to it? Who am I? Who are my people? We're nothing isn't that the message Christ gave to the church all through the New Testament? I am nothing. My Father in heaven does it all. Look to my Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, for everything. He is the provider of everything we could possibly need. And that's what we, as human fathers, need to be to our children. To give of them ourselves. Provide them everything they need. And that doesn't mean all the toys they want. That means a proper balance of love and mercy and discipline and guidance and us living an upright type of life that they can look to as an example of how a human being should operate on the earth. So why is David saying these things? Because he knew that this would be a continuing relationship, and he's writing it down for the future, for us. 
Verse 15, For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. Everybody's going to die. We're just here for a short time, he says, and then we're gone. We have to make the most of it. O Eternal, our God, all this store that we have prepared to build a house for your holy name comes of your hand and is all your own. Doesn't he tell us again in Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. It all comes from him. He is going to give us silver and gold in the end to do his job. Both spiritual silver and gold and precious things, and I think physical as well. Scriptures seem to bear that out. It all comes from him. Who, who, do, who are we to think we accomplish or are anything? David is laying out the relationship that Christ would try to explain to the disciples later on. Right here. I know also, my God, that you try the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy your people, which are present here, to offer willingly to you. O eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of your people and prepare their heart to you. <coughs> if you're going to be our father, do everything you can to prepare your, the heart of this people to you. Try us. Work at it. Now, isn't it neat that we are on the precipice of doing the same thing that Solomon, with whom this covenant was made through David, to build a house for God? We're in the same position, same opportunity. Bigger, though, because it's spiritual, physical, all the above and more that David was contemplating here. But he didn't just limit it to that physical building that Solomon would build. It was the relationship here that David addressed between God and man. So this is very foundational instruction in terms of father-son relationships. David understood it that way. I think we could all look at these scriptures, just what we've read so far. And see how that we as human fathers did not live up to it in the way that it is put here. I can think back in rearing children and how I may have been too much this way, too much that way, not paid enough attention, allowed them to keep attitudes they shouldn't have had. On and on and on it goes and not living up to what this should be. We all fail to one degree or another. On the other, we all succeeded to one degree or another. For the most part, our kids did finally grow up. Was it because of us or in spite of us? That we could debate for a while. And probably some of each would be the right answer to that. But it comes from God. He asked Him to prepare their heart. Even as we go and ask God to give us the right heart and put it within us, as David did in Psalm 51. The right attitude, the heavenly attitude, has to come from God. It isn't in us. We, by very nature, are selfish, proud, vain, egotistical, self-centered to the core. 
deceitful and desperately wicked. Therefore, we have to go to our Father in heaven to obtain anything that, we, that is of value and to prepare our heart. Now, you might look at us and look at humans and say, well, there's some good. Well, where did it come from if there's some good? It came from the teachings of our parents. It came a little bit, maybe, from society around us, so that has become less and less a factor. But it didn't come from us. We came out screaming and yelling the moment we were born, rebelling against air. And we've been the same way ever since. I'm cold. Where's mommy's womb? Uh, now they're paddling my, me on my rear end to get me to even breathe. Now I'm hungry. It's me, 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 me. From the moment we show our face on the earth. And it has to be some kind of teaching and guidance and direction that teaches us not to be that way. And our parents, to one degree or another, help us with that. And we're limited. And so it is with God and us. It's, it's a difficult thing. He's the perfect Father. Has every right balance, every right way. And yet He's dealing with children that, by nature, are rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn, planting all four feet like an unbroke heifer, as, Ephraim, as Hosea describes Ephraim. And on and on it goes. So he's got his work cut out for us, for him. You think you've got it tough with your kids? You think you got tired of child-rearing by the time number 678 came along, or whatever number it was? God's got billions of them. And they're all pretty much alike. And yet he is willing to be a father to us all, Sooner or later, one way or another. And he is so patient. And yet, he will administer what is needed. Psalm 68, uh, verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rides upon the heaven by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And we can all be fatherless sons down here, born of human parents, without a true spiritual heavenly father, in relationship at least. And he is here to become a father to us, to adopt us. Now, he started the whole process with Adam and Eve. But on a spiritual level... An emotional level, it's not been there between us and God Almighty. So he's establishing this relationship. He'll be a father to the fatherless. Now, people argue a lot about whether you call God Yah or Jehovah or just which name fits. And do we have to use the original Hebrew because God can't understand languages? He's the one that made different languages, is he not? Do we have to use the same exact pronunciation that a Hebrew did 4,000 years ago? I don't think so, as long as we understand who the real being is. But you know, he made it real simple for us. He said, address him when you pray, 
Our Father in Heaven. Not my own dear loving personal Father and I'm the only one, dear God. But Our Father in Heaven. I don't need to say Yah or YHVH or however you want to say it to be perfectly right. And we probably don't have the exact right pronunciation. Anywho. Because different scholars come up with different ways. But our Father is very simple, isn't it? Real easy. Hard to misunderstand that. And He's there to be that. He has this name, Yah, but He's our Father. We were told to address Him as Father. Let's go to chapter 89 of Psalm. Psalm 89. I want to begin here in verse 1. David had one of these special relationships with God in heaven, didn't he? Of all mankind. He, he had one of the most special. So, we need to think in terms of David and what his relationship to deity was. The Psalms are a very good way to go there and to learn. And we don't have time to go through them all, but... Think of the Psalms in those terms when you read them. That this is the relationship that ought to be. This is how I should address God. This is the way I should think about Him. This is the way a relationship of a father and son ought to be. How we should communicate. What our actions and reactions should be. I will sing of the mercies of the Eternal forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, David had seen a great deal of the mercy of God, had he not? And the forgiveness that was offered to him. David had done some things that normally should bring death. But God showed mercy and forgave him of some pretty heinous crimes. And now he's singing of God's mercy. Now, God has shown some mercy on all of us. And He's brought us into His church, called us out of this world. And we have this opportunity to sing His praises forevermore. Not take Him for granted, as Malachi 1 indicates the church began to do. I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. His heart was filled with the mercy of God. Now, doesn't He tell us Christ Himself, as the first Son, the real, only our first begotten Son, that we are to show mercy upon our fellow man, and God will judge us precisely as we judge them. If we hold grudges, God will hold grudges. If we show mercy, forgiveness, and love, God will show forgiveness, mercy, and love. If we remember other people's problems, mistakes, sins, He will remember ours. He says, I will judge you precisely as you judge others. Now, David took the forgiveness that was given him and extended it to others. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. I'm going to make sure that your mercy is known forevermore because you've extended it to me. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness shall you establish in the very heavens. 
I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. So David is looking back and saying, look at this covenant you've made with us. We were baptized. We made a covenant with God that we would be His children forevermore. We would honor and revere and obey Him and never turn back, but always love Him as He has sworn that He will always love us. That's the covenant we made. That's what David's talking about here. Your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. He's rehearsing these things. We need to do the same thing. Refer back to the covenant we made with God of His way of life and not ever taking our hand off the plow and turning back, but always move forward. The heavens shall praise your wonders, O Eternal, your faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared to the Eternal? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Eternal? There's no dad like my dad. My dad can whip your dad. Remember, little boys? David had the same attitude toward his father in heaven. My dad's better than your dad. Any dad on heaven or earth. Who can be compared to the eternal? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the eternal? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Fear God. This is the beginning of wisdom. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Wow. How is it we as human boys growing up are so resentful of our fathers and how it's easy to be bitter against our children if they don't do as we want them to do? A son should hold his father in great respect and reverence. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong eternal like you or to your faithfulness round about you? You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, you still them. David saw God in the creation, just as Romans 1.20 says we should do. You've broken Rahab in pieces, and one that is slain, you've scattered your enemies with your strong arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. As for the world and the fullness thereof, you have founded them. How many of us as children looked upon our human fathers that way? We might have up to a certain point. We just stood in awe of our fathers. Wow, he's big. His hands are strong. He can pick me up. He can carry me in the house at night. One of my fondest memories as a child is when we've been on a trip, we get home, and Dad wouldn't kick my butt out of the car and say, go to the house. He'd pick me up and carry me, almost asleep still, in his arms, and lay me in my bed. I don't remember much from my early childhood, but I remember that. The, the comfort, the love, the feeling of here's someone who cares, doesn't even want to wake me up, but gently, lovingly put me in my bed. Wow. Where was I here? Uh, Well, I know I was somewhere. Eleven. The heavens are yours, the earth is yours. As for the world and the fullness thereof, you founded them. So, our Father was everything to us. And then, at some point, we began to turn. 
we began to look at his flaws and his problems and look upon him as not being the way we used to as a little child. And what did Christ say? Come to me or come to him as a little child. That's what I want you to have is that attitude toward your Father in heaven like a little child has to his father before he gets a little older begins to get independent and resentful and disobedient. The north and the south you have created them, Tabor and Hermon, shall rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand and high as your right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. This is New Testament teaching, isn't it? Because it's discussing fatherhood, as we'll see as we go on. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Eternal, in the light of your countenance. Our Father smiling on us. Now that's the way we want it to be. Our Father in heaven smiling on us, blessing us, enjoying us, feeling the relationship of Father and Son, the way it was intended, as David is describing here. And yet today, we are dysfunctional. Our Father has turned His face from us because He can't bear our sins. He has scattered and splintered us because of our lack of respect and honor to Him. And this is what He wants us to return to, what David is describing here. So that we might again feel the light and the joy of His pleasure. This is the way it was intended, and we fouled it up. Let's face it. Let's get this back. In your name shall they rejoice all the day, and in your righteousness shall they be exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horns shall be exalted. If we're going to have happiness and joy, it has to be from the horn of plenty of God. For the Eternal is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. So a Father is a provider, we've already seen that. He is also our protector. We can go to Him in time of trouble or with enemies and ask Him to take care of the situation as David did throughout the Psalms. Then you spoke in vision to your Holy One and said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him with whom my hand shall be established, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. Now, didn't he say, I will raise up David there in Psalm, oh, where was it, about 64, 3, somewhere right in there. We just read it. He is going to give us the attitude that David had. It is going to be shown to us. And that's an end-time prophecy. So what David is saying here is what God wants with us and for us. Doesn't he say to fear not and I will take care of you? I will protect you. You'll serve me. You'll be counted worthy to escape all this horror that's coming on the earth. He wants to be our protector and yet we've pulled away. And we look to other things for our protection and our help, not to God. He's our healers, another of his titles. And yet we'll go to others 
to do what God says is his job. Now, if we don't have faith in God, maybe that's our only option. I don't know. But why not have faith in God? Why not trust God? I mean, that's, after all, what he says he is. Doesn't a father, a mother, pity their little children, and when they're sick, they want to do everything they can for them? Try to help them feel better? Try to give them food that will heal, help heal their bodies? God's away that way with us, and yet we'll go to someone else. How does that make him feel? We don't trust our very own Father to take care of us. But we'll run to others and despise, despite him. We need to think about that. I'm not going to try to police what medical procedures you take. I'm just going to try to encourage you to trust your Father in heaven and your healer. That's who he is. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. By your faith, you are made whole. If we are not being made whole, if we are not being healed, then we need to question our faith, not where in the world did you go? It is not he that fails. It is us who fail to have faith. We need to learn it. The just shall live and walk by faith. Trusting our Father. Do we pick up arms and go to war? No. God is our protector. He's our Father. He loves us. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. There's what we're to do. Speaking of Israel here. And then spiritual Israel is given a great deal of encouragement in the New Testament along these lines. God deepens that father-son relationship in the New Testament. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him, David and the kingdom that would follow him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, uh-oh, God says, I'm going to be everything there is to be for you, your provider, your protector, to take care of every need you have. But, if his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. So even though we be punished, beaten with stripes, God says, I'm going to love you anyway. And even though his face is turned from us right now, he loves us anyway. And he says, for a moment this will be, and then I will turn back to you with mercy and loving kindness and blessing and joy. In other words, he's paddling us 
not because He hates us. He's paddling us because He loves us. And He wants us to straighten up and be proper sons. And if we will do that, He will turn His face to us in joy and smiling and happiness and peace and love and mercy. That's why He says, turn your heart back to Me. That's why as a child, when its parent punishes it, the parent is doing a disservice if he turns and hugs and kisses before the attitude changes. If you allow that child, after you spank it or discipline it in some way, to continue to pout or to go slam a door or to express rebellion in whatever way, you have not finished your job. You are hurting that child. Until the attitude changes, the discipline continues. When the attitude changes and the child is loving, mild, humble, respectful, then your job is finished. Then the hugs and kisses come. But as long as there is resentment there, you've not done the job. Now, God is going to keep administering, chastening to the church until a sufficient number have repented and become as little children. Meek, humble, resentment gone, stiff-necked regone, stiff neck gone, and gentleness and love. Then He will turn and bless us. That's what He wants of us. My covenant will I not break, verse 34, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. God says, the love is unconditional. The punishment will come when you disobey, and it will continue until you're meek and pliable, loving, and obedient. Then the job is finished. Parents sometimes say, well, I disciplined, but it didn't do any good. They just walked off and slammed the door. No, you didn't finish the job. I'm sorry. You did it halfway. And the child is probably more bitter and resentful than they were when you started. And when I start talking this way, some parents get all uptight toward me. Let's understand. If you really love your child, you will make sure that his attitudes are right and respectful and loving. If you allow any kind of backtalk, any kind of rebellion or pouting, you're not being a proper father or mother. That's bottom line. God says it to us. He's not going to let up on you and me until the stubborn, stiff-necked selfishness is gone and obedience and love are there. Then it will stop and we'll get our hugs. He's not going to forget it either. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. 
It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Now Solomon was called peace or peaceable, but Solomon also means sun and moon. So the covenant that God was establishing with David through Solomon was as unceasing and as continuing as the sun and the moon. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the moon comes up, and the moon goes down in peace and in harmony. Quiet obedience to the law of the heavens that God established. And He wants us to be peaceable and loving and as steady as the sun and the moon. That's why I called Him Sun and Moon or Solomon. Sol y moon. And God points to the sun and the moon as evidence of His faithfulness. The sun comes up every morning, it says. And in the book of Lamentations, it says He gives us a fresh start every day. What a loving, faithful Father. He does not hold any grudge. If your bad attitude goes away and you repent in the night... You get a fresh start every morning. Ah, that we would do that with each other instead of the attitudes and the grudges and the feelings and the emotions and the past and everything that we hold dear and will bring up at the slightest provocation. God does not do that. He removes our sins as far as the east from the west. He only holds us accountable for the sin of the day. The evil of the day is sufficient. Doesn't need more than that. And that's the way it is. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been angry with your anointed. That's us. You have made void the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have set up your right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies to rejoice. So God made this covenant with us and says, this is the way it's supposed to be, and I will keep it forevermore. The sun and moon is testimony to that. But look what you've done. You've screwed it up. You've made a mess of it. Now fix it. You've also turned the edge of his sword and have not made him to stand in the battle. We wilt all too easily, don't we? And the spiritual battle that is set before us. You have made His glory to cease and cast His throne down to the ground. Now God says He's going to crown us if we'll overcome with His glory. But we've cast our crown into the dirt. The days of His youth have you shortened. You have covered Him with shame. How long, eternal, will you hide yourself forever? Shall your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Wherefore have you made all men in vain? We all die. What man is he that lives and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Eternal, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore unto David in your truth? So here we are. We have the same promises made of our Father in heaven that he made to David. He even says he's going to raise up a David to us here in the end time who will cradle us as lambs as Christ would. 
So he's offering us the very same thing, brethren. But right now his anger has been kindled. He says it'll just be for a short while. And then his face will shine on us there in Isaiah 54 and 55 and through that section. Remember, eternal, the reproach of your servants, how I do bear in my bosom the reproach of all the mighty people. See, here's a surrendering, meek, humble attitude. God, I know we've sinned. I know we've broken the covenant. I know we've done what we shouldn't do. How long will you be angry? Please forgive us. Please have mercy on us. Wherewith your enemies have reproached, O Eternal, wherewith they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. In spite of all this, he says, Blessed be the Eternal forevermore. You gave us this covenant. You told us what to do. We messed it up. Please don't be angry with us. Forgive us. Blessed be your name forever. Now that is the kind of response to parenting that God desires. It's the kind of response He wants between us as human fathers and our children. Make sure we love them and we show that love. When they disobey, we make sure their attitude changes and we stay angry until it changes. And only then do we back off and smile and give them kisses and hugs. There is the right balance in father-son relationships that we've all suffered from because we were, to one degree or another, dysfunctional. So we need to get back to the words of God and how He interacts with His children and do the same with our own children. So in honoring and respecting our Father in heaven, we then can learn how to make the human relationships the same way. So God is starting to give us insight in these scriptures of how it ought to be and how maybe it wasn't that way in the past with us physically or with our God spiritually. So it's time to get it in balance and understand how he is as a father. He promises every good thing. And when we don't perform, well, the good things are taken away. And only when we then change our attitude do the good things come back. If we could just maintain that with our Father in heaven and with our sons on the earth, our children, we would be way ahead of where we are today. So let's leave it at that for today.